SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. All right, welcome to another edition of the Conference USA Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Uh, Joe Londrigan and Eric Henry here with you to recap the CUSA Championship game over the weekend. And Eric, in my opinion, probably the most entertaining championship game we got this weekend we had some good ones but uh i think this one was my favorite and i realize the bias that comes across in saying that but you know what whatever i was just about to say to you we are completely biased and i am not even going to pretend joe as if i even watched any other conference title game because none of them really matter to me and that's no disrespect to any of the other leagues obviously we know where our bread is buttered i was trying to think of an idiom there but as, uh, anyone who follows the udd twitter account knows I suck at idioms, so we'll just stick with that one. Uh, no, Joe, I mean, listen, I and again, I tweeted this out in the first quarter that anyone who was not watching the CUSA title game needed to be watching, and I know we're going to get into a recap in a second, but I had some people kind of hop into my DM and say, oh, the scores, you know, when UTSA went up by X amount of points, such and such and such. I was like, you guys haven't watched Conference USA or Western Kentucky all season. Just wait, and sure enough, <laughs> they came back and uh, made it an interesting game. So definitely one of the uh, one of the top. It's in my mind the best conference title game of the uh, of the weekend. Yeah, you know, I watched I watched most of the Sun Belt game. Uh, I watched a little bit of the SEC championship game uh, just out of curiosity. Um, but yeah, I mean, this one was the one that really mattered, um, in my opinion, anyway. And you're right. You can never truly count out a Zach Kitley coached offense. So we definitely got what we uh, we got our money's worth in terms of what the second half performance was here. Uh, of course, UTSA beat Western Kentucky in this game, 49 uh, to 41. Uh, the Roadrunners captured their first Conference USA title with this victory. Despite how close of a game this was in terms of the score and in terms of the offensive production, uh, UTSA had opportunities to win it by more. Uh, Sincere McCormick named the MVP of the game. He carried the ball 36 times for 204 yards and three touchdowns in this one. Uh, Frank Harris, also a fantastic game for him. 19 of 28 for 218 yards with two touchdown passes. Uh, he also ran for 81 yards and a touchdown on 11 carries here. In my opinion, the effectiveness in the run game is what really won it for UTSA here. They held the ball for 13 minutes longer than their opponent. And as a lot of teams who have played Western Kentucky will tell you, the key to beating them this year was to keep Bailey Zappi off the field. And for the first half, they did that really, really, really well. Um, really what killed Western Kentucky here were just three big turnovers, two interceptions by Zappi, plus a lost fumble by Jarrett Stearns. Uh, Zappi finished 38. 59 for 577 yards, four touchdowns and two interceptions. Uh, he will need four interception or he will need four touchdown passes rather in the bowl game to tie Joe Burrow's single season record and five to break it. Bottom line for WKU, they needed to break that habit of early game mistakes and they just couldn't uh, only 13 points for them in the first half. And, uh, you know, I, I can probably save my full thoughts on this for when we talk about coaching changes in the transfer portal, but um, it's going to be interesting to see if the Hilltoppers can kind of continue the offensive momentum they built this season. But ultimately, I don't want to take away from UTSA here because they they finished their dream season with a uh, with the first conference championship trophy to add to their case here. Yeah, Joe, I mean, talk about just 
I, I don't think there's any other way you can say it outside of just the dream season for UTSA, despite the one loss. I know some people get a little caught up in the fact that they did stumble, but that means nothing to me because as anyone who's listened to this podcast knows, I am not a believer that for a G5 team to have a quote-unquote dream season or a successful season, that means you have to go 13-0. I kind of feel like the Cincinnati's of the world and the UCF's of the world have kind of Listen, it's great to raise that standard, right? And great to think as a group of five team, you can excel and be better. But by no means does that make uh, make or break your season in my mind. So just the dream scenario, dream season, Joe. Uh, what a moment after the game. I think I think I tweeted this out that Lisa Compost and Jeff Trailer, a hell of a AD head coach combination, right? In my mind, this whole thing starts there when Lisa Compost was hired. There wasn't a race facility. There wasn't, you know, this feeling around UTSA football. And she stuck to her guns, made the decision to you know, have a coaching change from Frank Wilson, brought in her man and Jeff Trailer, And it's just been a complete, you know, I, I, I can't think of another verb, but just, a, a, again, a perfect scenario for uh, them to, for those two in San Antonio. As far as the game is concerned, Joe, you talk about the the box score and the, Time of possession. I don't really look too much into the time of possession with Western Kentucky just because of the fact that they throw the football so much. And in this game, in specificity, they had to throw given the fact that they fell behind, right? So in this case, you look at the rushing numbers. Noah Whittington led them with four carries or something like 16 or 17 yards. At that point in time, you know, there is, I guess the best word I'll use to describe the Western Kentucky run game is judicious. You know, they, they like to use it when a, in 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 you know certain spurts but there wasn't really an opportunity to do that when you were playing from behind so the time possession numbers don't really bother me because with that offense again and you'll talk about it a little bit a little bit later on they have the ability to go 80 yards and under a minute and a half pretty quickly it was what you mentioned in terms of the turnovers and then of course the run defense right and, and i'm not going to fault western kentucky at all for giving up 204 yards and three touchdowns to sincere mccormick because i mean look you, you can do this nearly any game right so the 36 for 204 but that included a 65 yard run so you take that out you got like 35 for a buck 39 if my math is correct but it's the three and four and five yard chunks when western kentucky joe as i'm sure you'll note, when they needed to get off the field they couldn't you want to add the 11 carries for 81 yards from frank harris i remember a key third down where frank harris once it was like a third and eight a third and nine in the second half frank harris just scrambled and picked up 12, 13 yards and extended the drive. It's those things that really won this game for UTSA. And I also noted this during the game, Joe, and I want your thoughts on this. I had a, I don't know if they're a Western Kentucky fan or not, but someone noted when I, when I tweeted out that despite the passing exploits of Bailey Zappi and both the, the Western Kentucky UTSA contest this year, Frank Harris went toe to toe with him. And I, again, Twitter character limits only allow for so much, much nuance and explanation. I wasn't saying that Frank Harris went throw for throw for him. But, and I had read some reports, shout out to Greg Luca and JJ Perez and, you know, some of the other guys down there uh, who, who cover um, Adrian Bermudez, all, all the people down there who cover UTSA, some quotes from Frank Harris, a feeling of being upset that all the talk was about Bailey Zappi, right? And Joe, I felt that that feeling was warranted because there's multiple ways to skin a cat, right? Just because Frank Harris isn't going to throw for 500 yards in a game doesn't mean that in terms of playing the quarterback position, he isn't going toe for toe. Joe, when the throws needed to be made, Frank Harris made them. When he needed to pick up a first down with his legs, he managed to do that. And in my mind, 
we'll see what happens when we talk about conference player of the year and all of those things. But in my mind, Frank Harris hasn't gotten enough credit for just quarterback play, right? That's that in my mind, that is an all encompassing stat. And he's not going to wow you with the passing numbers, but he's when it came time to make throws, he made them. And in my mind, just as much as sincere McCormick's 204 yards really was Frank Harris's uh, quick math or 218 plus 81. That is 299, uh, 299 yards of total offense. Frank Harris does exactly what he needs to do for the way that system is designed, right? If you look at the way that the offensive system that Western Kentucky ran with this year under Zach Kitley, Bailey Zappi did exactly what that system needed him to do, right? It's just a difference of where you're going to put the the emphasis in your play calling. And with uh, with UTSA, they have the benefit of having other options to where they don't need to throw the ball 60 times a game. That doesn't make Frank Harris a, a worse passer. In fact, I mean, when again, like you said, when he had to throw it, he was pretty on the money. And, you know, it, it, it also helps that you have guys like Zachary Franklin who are you know, basically, I think you can basically just show <laughs> Zachary Franklin's tape in this game to any NFL team and he should get a contract. I, he was <laughs> phenomenal. Um, but that being said, Frank Harris has been one of my favorite offensive players in, the G, in all the G5 this season because of just how un, unshakable he is. It's really hard to rattle him. You and I have talked about it in the last few games. You go back to the game-winning touchdown in the UAB game where it was a bad snap, able to pick it up and still find uh, an open Oscar Cardenas for the game-winning touchdown. And there was a play in this game too where Frank Harris was all but on the ground. And I think the Western Kentucky defensive line had – Every part of his body wrapped up except the one arm that had the football in it. I don't remember the exact receiver, but he managed to dump it off to his receiver and it turned into like a six yard game. That is extremely hard to find at the college level. And the players who have that level of concentration often find some level of success in the professional ranks. You can't look at the way this guy plays and say he doesn't have the exact mental skill set that you need to be a successful professional quarterback. Yeah, Joe. So kind of piggyback on what you said there. I, I agree. And I think now, listen, this is a discussion that we'll have going into next year. Frank Harris did announce he's coming back to UCSA for another year. But in terms of your point, I think it's one that's astute and one that is worth noting here. Listen, we can get into a broader discussion about the quarterback position, the way it's played. And I do think, Joe, I, I don't want to go too off the beaten path here, right? So I'll try to say this succinctly. Um, maybe you look back 10, 12, 15 years ago, whatever, and the um, maybe those quarterbacks were a little bit before their time, right? The Michael Vicks, the um, Cam Newtons, right? In terms of the shift, uh, the evolution of the quarterback position in terms of guys who can scramble, right? Because then, then there seemed to be a shift back to the typical pocket passers, you know, the Sam Bradfords, Matthew Staffords, et cetera, et cetera. I think we're at a point now, and I'd like to use guys like Josh Allen as the the reference point. Josh Allen's a damn good athlete, right? I mean, guys like him, guys like Aaron Rodgers, guys, you, you can, Dak Prescott. I mean, you can kind of name your quarterback in the NFL right now. And quite frankly, I think you're going to find fewer quarterbacks than not who, who are, you know, statues back there in the pocket and can't move. I do think today's game kind of allows for a guy like Frank Harris, who 
can be utilized using his legs. Uh, you can even point to a, and I'm not comparing Frank Harris to a Kyler Murray level athlete, right? Kyler Murray is good enough to be drafted as a top uh, first round pick in multiple sports. But to kind of bring it home to your point on Frank Harris, I think there's more room for a guy like him in the NFL. And that's not saying he's a starter. I, I still don't know whether or not Frank Harris is an NFL starter, right? Um, he'll have another year, and, and this year's draft class is a little bit, at least by the experts, perceived to be a little bit weaker than maybe what may come out next year. But my overall point is I think there's more room for a guy like Frank Harris to have a seven, eight, nine, ten year career as a as a backup, maybe a fringe guy, a fringe starter. As opposed to, you know, in years past when you would look at the injury injury history and say, OK, um, the guy had a couple, you know, ACL injuries. He's very much a dual threat guy. And, you know, maybe we have questions about his his pocket proficiency. I think there's more room for that now in terms of, you know, pro potential where it's a guy who says, all right, you know, he clearly is adequate enough as you mentioned, has the mental makeup, right? The competitive, all, all those those buzzwords that you like to have from your football players or quarterbacks about competition and all those things, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I, I do think there's room and, you know, can have discussion again next year. Frank Harris puts together another year of being healthy and develops. And, and yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I don't know. I hope I wasn't. It didn't feel like I was indicating that I don't think Frank Harris has the, you know, athletic ability to, you know, be up there with those, like, top scramblers. He's he's a very well-balanced quarterback is I guess what I'm saying based on situations where he's had to be, you know, the pocket guy and, you know, lead those kind of drives and those like long time consuming drives, he's done it. And when he's had to, you know, basically fix a broken play and do it himself, he's, he, he has that option, but moving into next season, I definitely think he's one of these guys that they can continue to kind of build that offense around and sincere McCormick still has eligibility left, correct? He's only what a sophomore. This was his sophomore uh, season. Sincere McCormick is, is a is a junior, but I mean, okay. I, He'll, okay. I, I don't know what you think. I don't know what you think, Joe. But I I I don't think put you this way. And we've had this discussion about many many, uh, unfortunately, many conference USA backs, right? Mm-hmm. I just think sincere McCormick has reached his uh, his carry count in college. I mean, I I I, I don't know how you feel about that, but I I, I think. I think he's reached his carry count where he doesn't need another 200, 250 carries on his college count. Um, he needs to go uh, make a little money. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, if he did stay, then they would have him to build around, but um, I certainly wouldn't blame him based on how much he's been utilized and knowing the, you know, lifespan's not the right word, but the, the professional lifespan of sure. quarterbacks in the NFL, or not quarterbacks, running backs in the NFL certainly would make sense for him to make the jump now. Um, but I mean, I, I don't want it to get lost that what Jeff Trailer has created in terms of an offensive system there and how well balanced it is, you know, that's that's really nice for them. And if you have another if you have an experienced quarterback like Frank Harris to kind of continue to basically lift up these young guys that are in the system, then, you know, UTSA is is well poised to continue this winning tradition that they've created for themselves uh, when they you know move into the American. But, um, man, and, you know, I, I can appreciate that in his postgame speech to uh, transitioning this conversation a little bit that Jeff Trailer really thanked a lot of the support staff within UTSA and in particular Lisa Campos um, for helping, you know, boost the profile of this program. And, you know, I think it, it's easy to be cynical about the nature of athletics administrators 
uh, especially, you know, within the G5, where a lot of times we don't see, you know, proper, uh, what's the word, attention paid to, uh, you know, football in particular, unfortunately, and just don't, you know, really use, uh, don't garner fan support the way that you're supposed to and just don't manage resources well. And I'm, I'm glad that Jeff Trailer is able to look at what Lisa Combos has done and acknowledge that. And uh, yeah, it was a, it looked like a fun party in San Antonio. I'm really sad I didn't get to go. I was planning on going most of the year. And then the last month, things have just like not <laughs> gone my way <laughs> in terms of timing. But I don't know, hopefully soon. Yes, I'm going to touch on two things you said there. One, again, as I led with Lisa Compost, the incredible job that she has done. What I, the moment I love to see was, or I, I loved, I should say, past tense to, to see when I was watching the post game celebration was Jeff Trailer coming off the, the sideline. And, you know, before he even made his way to, to, you know, really the cornered off celebration or the, or the, the, come on what's the word i'm looking for the 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 area where they where they kind of blocked off for the celebration on the field wow i'm struggling for a word here until it's a uh, six o'clock my time he saw lisa compost and they two you know kind of saw each other and they shared a big hug and again that's just hate to throw fiu under the bus but, but as someone who covers the ad head coach relationship that quite was was not a was not quite that definitely is nice to see two people in a lockstep and again you can just tell the appreciation they have for each other and again this is it's the culmination of everything they've done and uh it's you know great job for them in terms of the party joe i saw this tweet i want to say again it was from our guy jared kalmas who said that he overheard someone talking about the utsa tailgate and how much he enjoyed the fact that you could hear country hip-hop and latin music uh you know i can't remember if it was a mariachi band or just latin music in general but i don't want to misquote the tweet there but the fact that you could walk to the tailgate and hear all three of those things and I don't know about you, but that sounds like a hell of a time. I mean, I, I always appreciate being here in South Florida, some of the different flavors that you can get from neighborhood to neighborhood or block to block. And that just sounds like a part to bring all of that together for one cause being UTSA football. I think it's great that it's happening. I hope they pack the dome every year, or excuse me, every uh, game next year and uh, and going forward because it's, it's, it's a great football environment. And again, to see where that program has come from in just a short period of time i think it's great for college football joe i am a huge fan of more programs cracking the glass ceiling and i'm not saying glass ceiling in terms of you know, college football player for anything like that i'm just talking about your traditional schools that you think of as college football powerhouses right i'm in favor of more of those teams and not less um so if they can build an environment there in san antonio certainly no shortage of football in texas <laughs> i'd love to see it that brought two thoughts to mind for me eric the first is while I'm absolutely in favor of college football playoff expansion to some degree, I think when you look at just the atmosphere in the Alamo Dome the other night and you see just the, you know, the happiness that the success of this football program caused for the city of San Antonio and UTSA alumni, fans, et cetera, I, you know, I think that really – is a powerful example against this narrative that G5 football doesn't matter if there's no representation in the playoff, right? Like, obviously, there needs to be a larger conversation about G5 inclusion in the college football playoff. Absolutely. But when you look at examples like what we saw with this and just how much, A, just non-tangible things like just fun, passion, et cetera, and 
B, with obviously just the economic impact that this had to have on, you know, the city of San Antonio, on the university itself, and, you know, on, you know, a lo- like I've, I've never seen, well, I mean, I haven't recently seen uh, an alumni community that supports itself to the extent that UTSA's does. And that's, that's really fun to see. And hopefully that kind of attitude continues to spread throughout the rest of these up and coming G5s. Um, and B, I would love to do a case study. Maybe this is an off-season project for me. The correlation between the growth of the tailgating scene in San Antonio and the success of, of the football program. Because obviously, as you and I know, UTSA had some bad years in terms of results on the field. But as far as I can tell, the tailgating scene there was really there from day one. And obviously, I feel like that support that they got had to have played a big role in, you know, showing how worth it it is to invest the resources that they have in the football program. So I'd be interested to kind of do an official dive into that. But just from like a surface level, it seems pretty undeniable that they kind of put one of those, you know, the fans made sure that the tailgating scene was there, you know, which is which is awesome. And you were talking about the music and everything. They had it figured out from the jump, which is Again, it makes me want to go to a game at the Alamo Dome all the more. All <laughs> right. Same here. No, I mean, I'll kind of touch on two things. Right. So one, there obviously is some correlation, not maybe not necessarily a correlation between, oh, how many people tailgate and wins right now. I think that's what you're saying. But if you I look at UCF, I'll use UCF as an example. One of the big factors when the team, uh, when the program or even athletics as a whole decided that they wanted to, you know, really just full scale you probably talking about the danny white start of danny white era from 2016 on full scale make a, a turn to athletics a huge part of that and again i know this being a ucf grad it's probably a little closer to things than, than most a huge part of it was just the amount of people who showed up for tailgate there was never a tailgate issue at ucf now certainly it's grown leaps and bounds right but there were always plenty of people who would show up, even going back to the days at the citrus bowls you know two decades ago there was never an issue with people showing up, right? And then any athletic director would look at that and say, hey, well, clearly if we got this amount of people who are willing to come out and enjoy the atmosphere and have some allegiance to either the school or, you know, this city and want to come here, might make sense to give a full-scale push to athletics and see what we can do here. And if we win, it certainly will result in a in a large-scale success, right? So, I, of course, it would be smart to think there's a correlation there. And then kind of what you said about the, the idea – and I, I think it's a recent idea that, you know, G5 football doesn't matter, right? Uh, or, or excuse me, G5 football doesn't matter. I think what you said was G5 football doesn't matter. Some people feel that way if you're not cracking the college football playoff. I, that is just so disappointing to me. Joe, some of my favorite games to watch uh, as a kid, we're talking about, you know, 2000s to the early 2010s, were the midweek game on ESPN that was the Mac or, you know, smaller leagues. And I was, yes, Joe, I was, shocker here, I was that cultural ball nerd who I, I would try to get my dad to order the, you know, the the games, but I'm probably going to date myself here, in, you know, late 90s, early 2000s when games were on pay-per-view, right? When, you know, it'd be the the SEC, SEC team, or in this case, like Florida State or Florida, they'd play your, you know, smaller team. I'd be like, the game wouldn't be carried on ESPN. I'd be like, yo, can you just order that on pay-per-view? Because that's the only place to be shown. But even... Uh, again, probably gonna date myself here, but Jefferson Pilot game of the week. I, I was the one watching, 
you know, East Carolina versus Cincinnati, especially growing up in Tampa with the rise of USF football and their transition from then Division One AA, now FCS, through uh, Conference USA. And gosh, I think, uh, come on, um, they were even in the MAC, if memory serves me correct. No, Central Florida was in the MAC. USF was in another smaller league uh, before. Uh, they, Conference USA, Big East, I think there might have been one more smaller league that I'm missing. But I loved watching those games. And, I, and, I, and Joe, I don't know how you feel about this. I'll toss it to you here um, and let you transition as you, as you see fit. Doesn't it feel like since the quote-unquote Group of Five era, right, the 2013 um, expansion, the Group of Five era, I feel like that's created the informal divide. And now even um, I think that's created the informal divide. And I think the transition away from the BCS has created the informal divide. I'm sure the first point you'll be able to get on your own. So I'll try to quickly explain the second point. Looking at USF's run in 2007, right, when they shot all the way up to number two in the nation. And it was 08. I think I can't remember which year it was. USF fans won't let you forget it. Um, It didn't seem to me like there was this feeling of, oh my gosh, they don't belong. It seemed to me like it was, wow, look at this great story, this little underdog school. Uh, and just for any USF fan may hear this, I mean, little in terms of college football pedigree. Underdog schools risen to number two in the nation. This is great. Obviously, they didn't hold on to that. But it feels to me, Joe, as if because of the fact that there are humans now making the decision instead of the computers, it, it, it's less of a, oh man, this is great. Let's cheer for this. And now more of a feeling of you need to make the right decision, if that makes sense. So I, I hopefully you can tie all that together and I'll, I'll let you transition as you see fit. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that the argument can be made that the whole G5 P5, you know, power battle that kind of goes back to like the early nineties ish uh, around 94 when the big 12 uh, came to be, but that's not, I mean, I, I don't think that's really the the question here. Um, what I think you're asking is like the role of G5 football and how that's kind of grown, right? And listen, as someone who grew up playing the sport in kind of the heart of Mac country, the role of P5 versus G5, you know, with like Ohio State was, um, for example, I'm using Ohio State as an example because I grew up in Ohio. I grew up about like an hour and a half from Ohio State. Anyway, seeing programs like that, we're very clearly uh, a showcase for every once in a while. I mean, yes, you did have the the best of the best local talent, the AJ Hawks, the the Kirk Herb Streets, the Maurice Clarets, et cetera, who came in and made an impact on those teams. But you also have to keep in mind that a lot of those guys that, you know, were big on, you know, the the P5 teams in that era were like national talent, right? Like they were the teams that uh, brought in, you know, recruits from Florida, Texas, California, all over. And then uh, the role of the G5s was that place where like all the other local talent, their role really was to be the destination for the local kids who were obviously very good athletes, but maybe not like, national recognition good to see now how that shifted with g5 teams realizing that you know they're a national brand or they can be a national brand and obviously the internet has helped greatly with that um so that's obviously played a big role in how the recruiting strategy the marketing strategy and just the overall philosophy 
of G5 football has shifted. And obviously it's, you know, there's, it's a big deal that we now know that G5s can in fact compete for a national title when that really, you know, hadn't been the case for a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's in, and that's that's a that's a way that quite frankly I hadn't looked at it right. So I think it's interesting when you talk about kind of um, the talent acquisition, um, and also listen. I, I think that's another good point on your part in terms of if you're going to go big scale when looking at the G five P five divide, you got to take it all the way back to the you know the creation of the Big Twelve, right? So that's a a fair point as well. Um, it, it just seems again, and maybe I'm just you know spitballing a bunch of random things that are on my head, but it just it, it almost feels to me like. This is a byproduct of, gosh, I'm, I'm going to sound way older than, than I am, you know, millennial, but it's a byproduct of social media, right? Because, you know, everyone can have a, a debate right at your fingertips in terms of this team and that team and who's, who is, is worthy and who isn't. And less about just enjoying the damn ride, right? Like that, that's something that it, it just seems, I'll, 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 I'll send it back to you with this. This is, and this may be something that I made, to a dive into the offseason. Every other sport, seemingly, whether it's professional or even March Madness, college basketball, we're fans of the underdog. <laughs> we're, we're universally fans of the underdog. I no pun Underdogdynasty.com. <laughs> anyway. Yes. Thank you, Trump. That, that, that was, see, listen, anyone who thinks that Joe and I don't have chemistry, we don't like plan this, like that, that should show you right there. Um, sorry. It's Who the hell one. said uh, we uh, didn't have chemistry? Point them uh, out. We'll, we'll point them out when we stop taping. Uh, <laughs> um, my point is, Joe, is universally fan of the underdogs, except seemingly in college football, there's this feeling against the underdog. So I, I'll just send it back to you with that. That to me is what's seemingly very glaring. Yeah, you know, it's it's weird that that narrative doesn't you know hasn't worked in in football as much which is weird i mean my my gut reaction to that is because money it's harder to you know make money nationwide with the directional schools and the like the western kentuckys the in the central floridas the appalachian states the marshals the utsas of the world than it is to just be like you know the university of southern california or uh the University of Texas, Ohio State University, um, you know, or, or, you know, in the examples where you have these, these other universities who seem to represent like these massive groups of people who are of a certain, I don't know, faith, like BYU and Notre Dame. Um, yeah, it's weird. The people that seem to, you know, think like, know your place. I, I have thoughts on how much the sport of football is connected to the political system in the u.s and i'm not going to go into that because i know people don't want to hear it but i think that has something to do with it um but also my i guess my my main thing is just money i think people just want to like stick to the idea that it's it's easier to make money with the alabamas the ohio states the the uffs the florida states of the world than it is with the uh the smaller schools the boise states etc um whereas for whatever reason um and it probably also has something to do with like football versus basketball too. Like the NCAA tournament that takes place over the course of about a month, sometimes, sometimes less. Whereas college football is this big, long thing that you have to pay attention to. Usually it's also hard to like track the, the progression of it compared to basketball. Whereas like 
you know, there's no playoff structure, right? It's It's been based on, you know, prior to the football playoff, we had the BCS, which was hard to keep track of. And then also you have this now, which is hard to keep track of in its own way of like, why is this team better than the other one? Why is, you know, the the opinion of these 12 old men in a hotel room in, in Florida somewhere, like, why is that the end all be all? Um, whereas with, you know, with basketball, it's a little bit different. And there's also, you know, you get to pick 68 teams as opposed to four, but I don't know. There's a lot of factors, I guess, is basically what I'm saying. And it's it's interesting to see how that's going to continue to evolve in the coming years. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I'll <laughs> I'll spare the audience, you know, my continued diatribe because I could even continue in terms of why I I, I think this is interesting. I, I'll just I'll just say, you know, I, I, <laughs> uh, you talk about the the committee, right? And and who's to say their idea? I think it's what 12, 12 men, one woman. Uh, I, I think is that Arizona State professor. Um, uh, Paula Bovin, if memory serves me correct. So 13 overall who, uh, who make those decisions. And, and anyhow, my reason for mentioning them is, is we all know they're not watching a ton of G5 football until it, it, it really matters. And especially um, I wonder how quickly they started watching Cincinnati football. So, you know, again, I, I could continue for another 20 minutes on this, but I'll, I'll save the listeners. Yeah. You know, someone real quick, someone made an interesting point on Twitter. I forget who it was. Um, over the weekend when talking about the conference championship game slate in order for the committee to realistically have watched every game in its entirety, as they've claimed to do, they basically would have had to like be up until like four or 5 AM the next day. And then obviously have the conversations about where each team should be ranked and then build the rankings and then also leave ESPN enough time to produce the show, which aired like two hours later. So I don't know. You do the math, right? Like that doesn't seem, it it doesn't seem impossible, but it seems unlikely, right? Highly unlikely. I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) So uh, conference USA championship. Congrats to UTSA. Don't want that to get lost because huge achievement for them. And honestly, for as much flack as conference USA has gotten for a lot of reasons. And for the most part, deservedly. So, um, really could not have asked for a better end to the year in terms of story with, you know, you had the success of WKU's offense going up against this UTSA dream season. And it was immensely entertaining for the last like few weeks of the season here. So congrats to Jeff trailer. Congrats to everybody involved. It was uh, literally fun. And it also, and I'll tack this on for Western Kentucky. Um, that offense is going to look a lot different next year. Zach Kitley, now the offensive coordinator at Texas Tech. Uh, Brian Ellis, formerly the co-offensive coordinator at Western Kentucky, is now the OC at Georgia Southern. And uh, Stephen Hamby, the O-line coach at Western Kentucky, is also now at Texas Tech. So they need to rebuild quickly. And uh, I'm assuming there's going to be some kind of shift in terms of offensive philosophy if you don't have someone who can run the air raid as efficiently as Zach Kitley has proven he can do. So we will see. Now, I, 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 I was going to save you from, you know, maybe a, a, a random Western Kentucky fan who might get at you. But um, I, I, I don't know if you saw they recorded that recorded that they recruited that kid, uh, Chance McDonald from from Washington, the air raid quarterback. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they will find a way, but we'll be fine. I, they, they can pick on you. if, if it, We'll see. It's what you said is fair. I mean, they lost freaking four offensive coaches. So if, if they want to slap you, it. Chance McDonald completed like two passes this year. 
<laughs> I'm just saying, you, you know, you know how they can be, but no, I, I, I think I don't worry about it. Listen, unless you can convince Mike Leach to come be the offensive coordinator, <laughs> in which honestly it'd be like, Hey, we got a bag of candy corn and Bigfoot leaves here. He'd be like, where do I sign? So whatever. <laughs> For this next segment of the podcast, um, typically Eric, we, we bring in some writers and other folks from around conference USA to kind of give us an update on their teams that they spend the most time paying attention to throughout the off season, starting that a little bit early because we, we lucked out with his availability. Uh, Mr. Harry Minium, senior writer for ODU sports.com. Uh, and uh, you know, I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm excited to share it with people here. Um, had some really fascinating insights on the growth of old dominion football and, and where they're going with the move to the Sun Belt coming up here. Yeah, Joe, kind of piggyback off what you said and echo your thoughts. They're really excited to talk to, I'm uh, really excited to have talked to, Harry and really, you know, ODU has been a team that I've had a lot of interest in for really the better part of, you know, um, since 2019, I had a chance to watch them live when they came to Miami and was really impressed. You may remember they, they went one 11 that year, but was really impressed with just, I, there's the team that battled Joe. I mean, yeah, the offense struggled a ton. They had a ton of quarterback issues and, you know, quarterback who started that game was Hayden Wolf. So when we talked extensively with Harry about in terms of how he's, really led the five-game win streak that they're on. But in specificity, their defense was one of the top defenses in the nation, despite being 1-11. So I was really excited to talk to Harry and kind of get the ins and outs of ODU and who better to talk to than someone who has been around that program and around that Norfolk area for the better part of four decades now. So hope uh, you everyone enjoys the conversation with Harry Minium. Absolutely. And uh, here he is, without further ado. All right. Welcome back underdog podcast listeners uh, special treat for you guys today we are talking to mr harry minium senior writer for old dominion sports uh, also spent 39 years at the virginian pilot uh watched the old dominion football program grow into what it is today uh harry again we're super appreciative of the uh of the time you're spending with us today and uh, the insights into the program Oh, uh, no problems with that whatsoever. And I appreciate the job that you guys do on a national basis. There's there's not a lot of nationwide coverage for the group of five. And what there is, you guys do. So we really appreciate that here at Old Dominion. Well, thanks. I mean, yeah, I know for, you know, Eric, you can lend your own insight to this. But, you know, it doesn't, doesn't feel like a job most days. So it's, you know, it's fine. <laughs> No, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it, it truly doesn't feel like a job most days. It's, but especially, I think, with most of us uh, who either you know, Joe has capacities managing editors, managing editors, excuse me, of the site, or those of our staff are all kind of products of a uh, group of five schools. So it, it definitely is is a passion project as much as it is a job. But Harry, I will open up the line of questioning, and I want to start here. You know, just okay. what is the feeling with? Old Dominion football around Norfolk. I mean, we all know the story in terms of this program opting out of last year due to COVID. And, you know, seemingly things have worked out pretty well for them. I mean, despite being picked to finish last and by the preseason uh, projections in Conference USA, we've seen where they're at now in terms of being bowl eligible. So what's the feeling? I mean, if you could kind of walk us from maybe the start of the year and what the feeling is from then to now. Sure. I mean, the feeling at the start of the year um, on among the team and coaches was that they were very optimistic. The feeling of the fans was, man, we're not going to be very good um, because the team was very young. Uh, they were they lost some key holdovers from the 2019 team, <clears throat> and you can't you can't underestimate how difficult it was for all those guys who did not play in 2020. Yes, they practiced, but 
you know, games and practices are they're much different. So most of the team had not played, and um, you know, most of the returning players had not played. We had nine FBS transfers who had played, and and we actually we did very well with the FBS transfers. But then we start out one and six. You know, we lose the Wake Forest, expect to lose that one. Lose Liberty, expect to lose that one. But then you trail um, Buffalo thirty-five to seven. You outscoring twenty-seven to nothing. You have an excessive celebration penalty, and the place kicker misses the extra point. You lose 35-34. You're ahead of Marshall with 32 seconds left. I think that's how much time was left. And they hit a 53-yard pass. The guy just ran past the safety. He had, you know, just didn't pick him up. And then they win in overtime. And uh, we're down 17 to nothing at UTEP, which is a hard place to play because it's so far to go. We take the lead in the fourth quarter and lose 28 to 21. So it was every reason to believe this team was going to quit. You know, you're one and six. You got to win five and zero to go to a bowl game. Nothing is going your way, and they they had no quit in them. They just came back and kept playing hard. Uh, the key win for them was that 46 uh, year 46 yard field goal by Nick Rice to win the Louisiana Tech game and. Um, Every other game since, they have not won handily, but they've won by an average of 14 points. Um, so they've, uh, you know, they're ready to play tomorrow. And the fans have, uh, after a year off, um, we didn't have it. We didn't sell as many tickets this year as we thought. And you know, we haven't had a winning season since 2016. So I guess it's not surprising. The crowds got loud, uh, larger and louder as the, as the year continued. And there's so much excitement here for next season. Virginia Tech's first football game with their new football coach will be here in Norfolk against Old Dominion. And um, I'm pretty sure that's going to be an ESPN broadcast. And um, if we're in the Sun Belt, which I think is likely, it's not definite yet, you know, there'll be games in Appalachian State and Coastal Carolina and Georgia State and Georgia Southern that would just be so much better for the fans here than Conference USA. I, I have a lot of respect for Conference USA. They were a great home for ODU. But the teams were just too, you know, they were just too far apart. Definitely want to jump into this aspect with you, Harry. As you talk about the team coming on in the later stretch of the year, of course, winning the five straight to now become bowl eligible, a really big part of that, at least from an outsider's perspective, it's been the play of quarterback, specificity with Hayden Wolf. And, you know, three minutes ago, a little bit extended here. And these are two guys who I, I've had a chance to see maybe more than the average, you know, average, uh, you know, college ball observer or someone who covers college football. Probably, you know, outside of anyone who doesn't cover Old Dominion football, uh, A, Hayden Wolf being a native of Venice, Florida, about an hour up the road from me. Uh, I've seen him since high school and had a chance to watch his first start and was very impressed with him in his first collegiate start at mm -hmm. FIU. It was a, at FIU in 2019 as a true freshman, which seemed to be somewhat of a, a surprise start. And then head coach Bobby Wilder, you know, played his heart out, had a really a, a tough game, got beat up a lot that day. And it was a 17-14 loss or 17-13 loss for ODU in game that they came in as a you know two-score underdog. And then, of course, the Norfolk native and DJ Mack Jr., who someone who I had a chance to watch being a UCF graduate, saw he... Well, that's true. Yeah. 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 I yeah had a chance to or, or, or no, Harry's going to real quick say I had a chance to, to see him. And, you know, he had some success in terms of filling in for Mackenzie Milton when he went down with his injury. So, um, you know, to kind of wrap all that in the form of a question here, <laughs> give that background for our listeners. But you just got to talk about, you know, what you've seen from the quarterback position and just kind of 
how much of the success, um, especially offensively, has really been triggered by the quarterback change. Well, let me say this. this uh, DJ Mack and I went to the same high school, Norvia High School, so I love him. Um, even if I didn't know him, I love him. He's a really good kid. Um, for whatever reason, it, think, it just wasn't happening with DJ there. Now, he – you know, he, he led the team to 27 points against Buffalo, and um, we actually had a uh, another drive where a kid fumbled into the end zone, so it could have been five touchdowns in the second half. But, you know, he made some key mistakes, and, and you know, Ricky Ronnie decided to make a change of quarterback, and Hayden has been – the thing about Hayden is he, he busts his rear end every week, every day. Um, Ricky Ronnie has a motto, go 1-0 every day. And that means just think about practice that day and then practice the next day. And then don't think about next week's game. Think about this week's game. And that's what that's what Hayden did. Um, interesting story about him. Um, our punter, Ethan Duane, is from Australia. And Ethan had no place to go last Christmas. So he went home with, with Hayden Wolf. And that's where he spends every holiday. And they've adopted him. Um that you know that tells you what kind of kid he is, and he is not a runner. And you know Ricky likes a running quarterback, but he's such a good thrower that he was able to get the offense charged up. And Blake Watson has run the ball really well uh, since Hayden has been quarterback, and the offense just started clicking. You know one of the issues here has been receivers dropping passes, and you know there's there's still occasional drops, but we seem to be a lot less you know as the season went on and. Uh, Hayden threw like a 46-yard touchdown pass to um, Ollie Jennings, the third. Um, gosh, I couldn't, you know, I've never seen a more perfect pass or catch. You know, he was well defended. The Charlotte guy was all over him. And, you know, that's made a big difference. The change of quarterback has made a big difference. Just want to, you know, add uh, one more question <clears throat> to piggyback off what you, something you said there I thought was was interesting. Um, and again, I definitely want to echo what you said about DJ Mack. I've had a chance to, you know, talk to him a couple of times when he was, you know, at UCF and certainly a, a, a lovable, you know, great young man. Um, but wanted to ask you this in terms of the quarterback switch, Harry. Do you think just because of Ricky Ronnie's history coming from Penn State and maybe him, you know, maybe the ideal person in his offense is a bit more of a mobile guy? Do you think that's just kind of what what set Hayden back initially in terms of getting the job? I think so. You know, Ian, Matt can run the ball. I mean, he's a good runner. Um, and he, and yeah, he's actually a pretty good thrower too. He just and I I just don't know what it was. There were just some times when he he just hung hung out in the uh, pocket too long and got sacked. And um, there were some times when he made some he made some big mistakes. He he threw an interception on a third down play. Um, when Old Dominion was like at the 10 or 12 yard line, at Marshall had he just thrown it out of bounds, you know, Old Dominion gets a field goal and probably wins the game. And you know, he's he's a good player. He's a great player. He's a great kid. It just for whatever reason, it it just wasn't working. And that doesn't mean he won't be playing next year. And you know, I'm, I'm sure Ricky's gonna. We, we have another quarterback, a couple of quarterbacks coming in. I can't tell you about. I can't talk about, but. <laughs> That's going to be quite a battle at quarterback next year because we've got two really good returnees, and um, and I can't really talk about the two guys who are incoming. But we're going to be in good shape at quarterback next year. No, not a problem at all, Harry. One of, 
transition to one of my favorite players in all of Conference USA, someone who has been reliable for this ODU program, has been there since 2016. And it's just crazy to think, man, that is a long time. But Isaac Weaver, I mean, just, again, one of my favorite guys in NCUSA. Just talk about him a little bit. Yeah, he's an interesting kid. You know, he lost his dad when he was like five or six years old and um, has a big family. And they they moved, I think, uh, from Texas to Atlanta to be closer to um, his mother's mom and his, his grandmother and grandparents had a, a great influence on him. I mean, they went through some hard times. They were struggling financially, too. And he is, uh, you know, he, he that kind of background can make some kids bitter. It just, it made Isaac just appreciate life and, and every day. And he's just a hard worker. He's a, he's a great guy. By the way, he can play the, he didn't, wouldn't want him, he wouldn't play it for me, but I understand he's a great guitar player. I was going to go over to his house and record it. And he says, nah, not going to do that. Um, he's the leader on this team. Uh, he is a different kind. He's the nicest guy on the face of the earth or off the field, on the field. He is not the nicest guy on the face of the earth. He's, he is uh, physical. Um, I think he probably leads the offensive line in penalties this year just because he's so aggressive. He's got a chance to play in the NFL. And, you know, he had hair down past his shoulders, um, and he cut it during the offseason. So, and he has this it's a completely different look. He's just a great kid. He's an interesting kid. He's a fun kid, always smiling. He's one of the people who helped hold the team together. Six-year senior when they were one and six. You know, he just says, look, we're going to be fine. And they were. So, yeah, he's a great player. He's a great kid. Again, we are joined by Harry Minium. He is the senior writer for ODU Sports and, of course, spent 39 years at the Virginian Pilot. Harry, want to ask you about what's probably been one of the most fruitful additions uh, in terms of Ricky Ronnie's club from Penn State, and that is tight end Zach Koontz, so someone who was a high four-star prospect, according to those of you who may subscribe to the 247 sports rankings, uh, was that high four-star, maybe low five-star prospect, signed with uh, Penn State, I believe the class of 2018, made his way to ODU, and quite frankly, has become the top tight end in Conference USA. He has been, and, and this is an argument for why some kids – you know, maybe they, maybe you shouldn't go to Penn State. Maybe you should go to an ODU or an FAU or Houston. You know, or you know, where you're going to get a chance to play earlier and 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 learn more. Like uh, Zach Pascal, uh, who who had some potential opportunities to go to Power Five schools. He he came to ODU. He he played four seasons, and you know now he's with the uh, Indianapolis Colts. He's he's a you know one of their better receivers, and he's a fan favorite there. Um, is, there's a lot to be said for coming to a smaller school where you don't have 12 All-Americans in front of you. And that's what happened to him. They just they recruited over his head at, at Penn State. They just got great guys. And from his interesting story, his first day of uh, spring practice, he was fifth on the depth chart. And they showed him the depth chart. And he said, okay. You know, like, you know, he's not insulted. He he doesn't have an ego so big, you know, like I'm a Penn State guy. I was a four-star recruit. I should be the starter. He just went out and worked his rear end off and earned it. He's a great kid. Every time he catches the ball, the fans here, they let out with coons. And um, sometimes not in the best situations. He, he caught a ball 
uh, on a third down for like three yards and we needed like eight. And so they're chanting coons. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the fans here love him. He seems to like it here. He um, he really he really enjoys Ricky. And, they, you know, there are a lot of coaches on this staff from Penn State. Um, Fontel Mines, the uh, tight ends coaches, um, they really clicked well together. So, yeah, he's been he's been a great addition. The Old Dominion would not be six and six were he not here. Last one for you, Harry, before I transition the line of questioning over to Joe. You'd like to end things with just kind of a, a fun question. And uh, while I've got the opportunity, I'm going to have to hit you with a two-parter here. The the first sure. one being Norfolk was always wanted to be one of the stops that I, I got to in, in covering CUSA and in specificity FIU. Just hasn't worked out the, uh, the first year I was on the beat. Uh, did not get a chance to make the trip. Um, and the last times uh, the games didn't happen. <laughs> um, but I've, I've heard nothing but great things about Norfolk. So the first part of the question is just, what's your favorite part about living in Norfolk? Well, um, that's hard for me to say because Virginia Beach, <clears throat> excuse me, Virginia Beach, our neighbor city is actually one of the, one of the great reasons I love Norfolk because they are this, they have a, their own downtown and then the oceanfront. Um, my dad was in the Navy, so that's how we wound up here. We have the largest naval base in the world here. Uh, Norfolk itself has seven miles of beaches along the Chesapeake Bay, and during the summer, that's where I spend a lot of my time. I guess the water, that would be it. I, I, grew, up, I grew up in Norfolk, went to ODU, um, only went away for two years to get a master's degree at VCU. And I try not to tell many people about that here because they get mad at me if they if they find out I'm a VCU graduate. But you know, I grew up on a little inlet of uh, Pretty Lake crabbing, and you know, when I lived in Richmond, I missed the water. It's just everywhere. Everywhere you go around here, you're going over bridges. Everywhere you go, there's scenic sunsets. Um, everywhere you go, there are beaches, there are seafood restaurants. It's just a, I love living here. I, I've had opportunities to leave and. And I have it, and I won't. I'll uh, I'll spend the rest of my life here. Um, downtown Norfolk is a great place to go if you're if you're ever coming up for a game. Try and stay at the downtown Marriott, or downtown Marriott is the place I would stay. And um, there's a lot to do along Grammy Street. There's waterfront where you can see you know ships coming and going. You can see a shipyard. It's it's just a really cool place. Second part of that question before I send over to Joe is this one and and. Your illustrious career, I know you've had the opportunity to travel plenty of times for games, and especially being here in Florida, specifically South Florida, I, I like to get out and travel because, you know, it, it, there are a lot of places that are much different than South Florida. It's more to, to, uh, to the you know, United States than, you know, it's a very unique area down here. So my, my question for you is this, Harry, what is it just, you know, any, I won't hold you down to just one, just any few or, you know, three or four that come to mind. Those are your favorite environments that you've ever covered a, well, narrow down to football, but you've covered a football game in favorite environments, you know, cities, stadiums, however you want to, you want to uh, qualify that. How about if we, uh, how about my favorite city in conference USA? Awesome. El Paso. I love El Paso. The people there, it's a 90% Hispanic city and everyone speaks English and Spanish. They're nice people. It's a blue collar city an oil town. And they are—they have public art everywhere. They're fiercely proud of their city. Yeah, there are mountains there. There's desert. Um, um, there's Mexico. It's, and I, I just—this last trip, I knew it was going to be our last trip to UTEP. Um, 
and so I and I was at that time I had just finished running a half marathon. So on Friday night I spent seven and a half miles, uh, several hours running seven and a half miles just all over El Paso, and then did five miles the next morning. And I just love the city, and um, you know I love the people at UTEP. They're great people. I, I wish them nothing but the best. They're that's not only my favorite city. That's my favorite Conference USA team, other than ODU. Uh, they're really good people. Their fans are nice. Um, I really had a good time there. Joe, there's another one that you know I've wanted to get to, didn't get a chance to make the trip with COVID canceling the uh, FIU game out of UTEP. But I, I, you know, certainly would would. Uh, while I haven't been, it's nice to hear because Harry's certainly not the first person to tell me nothing but great things about El Paso, Joe. Yeah, El Paso is fantastic. Um, hopefully we get the uh, opportunity to cover a game there real soon. Um, Harry, you mentioned kind of your love for Norfolk and Virginia and um, why it's such a great place to live. Um, we've talked to a few other people who are you know familiar with the recruiting world in the last couple of years about this, but um, Virginia's really boosted its profile in that regard um, with high school football and just you know the level of players that the state produces on a on a national level. What's that been like for for you as someone who you know has this state so near and dear to your heart in terms of watching the level of talent with uh, throughout the state and those guys that have come to Old Dominion as a result? Well, you know, Old Dominion did not do very well uh, recruiting kids in this area. They they, they they got some kids, but they didn't get a whole lot of the top 10 kids. And um, I don't know why. And, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not blaming anyone or saying anything did anything wrong. It just didn't happen. Uh, Ricky Ronnie has changed that. He is uh, he's got several kids in the class. We're going to sign in a couple of weeks who are turned down ACC schools. Um, yeah, that's unheard of for ODU. He he's his last couple of recruiting classes. He's he's gotten really good kids in the area, and he's not just getting good kids from this area. He's recruiting well in Richmond and Northern Virginia, and Roanoke, and he has made Virginia a his recruiting priority. And the first thing they did when they were able to go out is they went to every high school in Virginia they could go to. Ricky made it out to every high school in this region. And people said, it's been a while since we've seen someone from Old Dominion. We're glad you're here. I've forgotten who had this story. I think it was The Athletic. They had a story about, oh, yes, it was Andy Bitter in The Athletic. He wrote a story about Virginia and Virginia Tech and their rivalry and recruiting kids in Virginia and how neither one are doing well. And, you know, he said the one guy who is doing well is Ricky Ronnie. And he had some quotes from coaches saying that Ricky is recruiting the state better than anyone else. And I think that's true. He is not from Virginia, but he realizes Old Dominion is, you know, its enrollment is 70 or 80 percent Virginia kids. There's a lot of talent here. Uh, it makes sense to recruit kids whose parents can come see them play. And he says, well, you know, why am I going to go to, you know, to Florida if we've got the kids here we need? Yeah, you know, I think there's definitely been a shift in some of the the newer coaches that have come into Conference USA and the G5 in general to really make a point of nailing down their uh, their local talent and uh, building from there. Um, Charles Huff said something similar when we talked to him a few months ago. You know, Harry, obviously Notre or Old Dominion's only had football since uh, 2009, but you've been around um, – with the Virginia pilot prior to this role for, for 39 years, what's it been like to watch the culture of not just the football program, but the university, you know, 
grow and shift over those decades and how they've really, you know, built the fan culture. You're exactly right. Your question hit, hit it right on the nail. It changed the culture of the university. The university has is, is long had a reputation uh, for being a commuter school, and that really changed 20, 25 years ago. We've, we now have 5,000 kids on campus and probably another 5,000 in neighborhoods within half a mile of, of ODU. Uh, apartments are growing up all over the place, and uh, football gave people a reason to come to campus. Uh, you know, basketball is, is great, but you can, really can't have a, home, a true homecoming with football. Um, it is the tail, everyone looks forward to tailgating. The tailgating culture began from the very first game. It was amazing. It was it was as if a program had been brought down from you know Mississippi and, and dropped here. They were just ODU flags, uh, thousands of cars, thousands of days. Some people said that there were more people outside tailgating um, when the game began than they were inside, and the stadium was full because that's how big the demands tickets were for that first game. It is, it's, you know, people talk about Old Dominion differently now that we're an FBS program. In Virginia Tech, 49 to 35 in 2018, um, ESPN started referring to us as ODU then. Uh, you know, before then we were Old Dominion, you know. They figured out who we are and a lot of people figured out who we are. It's done so much good for the university. It's done so much good for the morale here. Um, the last five years, the last four years were difficult. But um, Ricky is sure turning things around. What can you tell us about the shift in the internal program culture under Ricky Ronnie compared to that of uh, Bobby Wilder in the last regime? Well, I have a lot of respect for Bobby. Uh, Bobby's a, a good personal friend, so I'm, I'm not going to say anything bad about Bobby. Um, I will say that the players tell me the culture here is much better, um, that there is uh, – and that's among the players. They're closer. Um, they're more involved with the coaches' families. And in Bobby's defense, most of the guys, most of his assistant coaches were not married. Um, these guys all seem to have wives or girlfriends and like a dozen kids. And those kids and girlfriends and wives are all over the place. They're all over the L.R. Hill Center. Uh, they're at the practice field. They're, they, uh, these kids go home and eat dinner with the coaches and their families once or twice a week. Um, and that really does build a camaraderie. And that's been happening since Ricky got here. And during COVID, he could only bring a couple of kids over to his house at a time. And he did that like every night for a month. He'd bring a couple of kids over and he and his wife, Jen, would have people over for dinner. Um, I don't think you see that in many football programs. I know James Franklin has the same. That that's where it came from. This is what James Franklin did at, at Vanderbilt and, and then at Penn State. Um, but you don't see a, a lot of programs where families are so involved with the team. And I think that I think that had a major influence on changing the culture here. And plus, Ricky, is he's just – he's no nonsense. He's honest. Um, you know, he tells you straight up where you stand. Sometimes he's told me straight up I didn't like that. <laughs> I said, that's fine. I want to know. You know, and uh, and he's, he's also told me when he's loved stuff I've written, and that's – that's the kind of guy he is. So I think the players really trust him. And um, yeah, the camaraderie here is so much better than it was. Uh, I want to ask a follow-up question to that. You mentioned um, the assistant coaches and kind of bringing their, their growing families around. And I just want to make sure I heard you right. They each have a dozen kids or they, they no, collectively no, no. have they're, a dozen they're about kids? A, okay. Yeah, collectively about a dozen kids. No, Blake Seiler, <laughs> uh, 
the defensive coordinator uh, has three. And uh, I asked his wife, I said, how many more are you going to have? And her being a good Catholic, she said, we leave that up to God. So I think Blake's <laughs> probably going to wind up with seven or eight kids. <laughs> my my own father was one of ten, so best of luck with that. Oh uh, uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, going back to this season, um, Eric kind of hit on the um, turnaround we saw about midseason for for Old Dominion and the winning streak that they've been on to reach bowl eligibility here. Um, if you could point to a single moment that was the turning point for Old Dominion this year, what do you think it was? I think it was a field goal against Louisiana Tech. 46-yard field goal into the wind. You know, a kick that Nick is usually Nick Rice is usually going to make, but not an easy kick. And uh, Old Dominion had played outplayed Louisiana Tech, not by a lot that game. Uh, they certainly outplayed Buffalo. I mean, they Old Dominion outgained Buffalo by like 250 or 300 yards and lost. And I, I think when they made that kick, uh, okay, we beat an FBS team. By the way, for the first time since 2018, they'd beaten an FBS team. And things went our way when we played well. And you could see their confidence, you know, grow each week thereafter. This team has gotten better every week since that game. It's gotten better every week. And I think that's got to be the key play this season. That's actually a great transition because I wanted to ask you about Nick Rice. Um, you wrote a, a great piece on him on odusports.com uh, earlier this week, which I encourage you all to go check out. Um, but you mentioned kind of his you know, plan for life after football and the, the skills that he used from that life um, to really help him build his, his football career and, you know, give him this opportunity at the D one level. And there's been a few other, you know, kind of similar stories, um, throughout college football this year. Um, but would love to kind of get your take on, you know, a Nick and, and just what he brings to the program and B um, some of the opportunities that old dominion, you know, offers these kids to, you know, grow their life outside of football and, and into the professional world. Well, the first thing I'd say is that having football here at old dominion has given, 30, you know, 25 or 30 kids a year, mostly, most of them African-American, a lot of them from poor families, the chance to go to college and get a career debt-free. And, you know, I don't know a lot of cynical people out there would say, well, that, you know, it's really just football. It's not about that, but it, it is about that. I've seen some of these guys go on and, you know, they have, uh, Old Dominion is a university that, is full of first-generation students, meaning kids who, whose parents and grandparents didn't go to college. That's what Old Dominion does best. We we educate thousands of those people, and football has helped do that. Um, in Nick's case, I've, I've <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever met a, a nicer nicer kid. He's got long blonde hair, and he he loves it. He twirl he you know he twists his head around so that it it flies all over the place. You know like you've seen some models do. Um, he is built like a linebacker. I've seen him with a shirt off, and I said, dude, you could do GQ. Um, and he's, 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 you know, he's got a lot of confidence. He's got a lot of self-confidence, which he needs as a kicker, and he's going to need as a salesman. So he is, um, you know, he's in a senior in high school. No one's offered him. He's gotten some offers from D3 schools for financial aid. That he, like he said, they just, it just wasn't financially feasible. So when a guy decommits from Old Dominion, he reaches out to Old Dominion with videos and testimonies and all that. And uh, this was in January. And they finally bring him on campus in April. And, um, you know, he continues to sell himself. And so Bobby Wilder offered him a, a scholarship. And 
you know, he enrolls a few weeks later, and the rest is history. He he broke a bunch of school records, but he said, had Old Dominion not offered him a scholarship, he was just going to be a regular student in South Florida. You know, he just, he had given up. Old Dominion was his last and really only hope. They're the only ones who showed any interest in him uh, from the Division One level. So he's going to be a salesman. And um, I talked to, to Dean, the, Dean Tanner, the dean of our business school, and he says there are very few kids uh, in the entire business school as smart or as um, committed or as hardworking as Nick Rice. You know, I, I tell some of these kids that I teach uh, that salesman set of skills is so important. So that's that's great to see that Nick Rice kind of started working on that that set of skills early. I want to come, you know, nail that home with, with some of the kids that I teach. Um, but I wanted to ask you about the uh, Sunbelt move. How does that kind of change uh, how Old Dominion is uh, looking to position itself, you know, on a, on a national scale and or maybe just as a, as a G5 football power here? Well, first thing is I, I believe it's going to happen next season. I think Marshall, Southern Miss, and Old Dominion will all join next season, as will JMU. Um, I don't, I, there's no reason for it not to happen next season. You know, I don't know the ins and outs of uh, how much Old Dominion's got to pay, but from what I understand, it is basically give up your revenue and move on. And there's no sense in playing a, you know, a, another year in Conference USA when you, when you can go to the Sun Belt. First thing it does is, is it gives um, – you know, they won't be able to play JMU next season because JMU is going to be in its transition year. But it gives Old Dominion an in-state rival. And JMU and Old Dominion, they only played twice when they were in the CAA. But there was absolute hate between those those teams and schools. Um, both games drew really well. Um, that that gives us something we haven't had in Conference USA, and that is a, a neighborhood rival. They're only three, three hours and 15 minutes up the road. Our fans can go there. Their fans can come here. Um, that's the best thing about the Sun Belt for Old Dominion. But there's also, I mean, frankly, it's, Better football um, in Appalachian State, Coastal Carolina, Georgia State, Georgia Southern, um, Marshall. You know, that's a pretty strong division. That's going to be very tough to win in that division. And um, and that's kind of what Old Dominion is looking for, a, you know, a, a league that's going to challenge us to get better. And we, we have the facilities here to get better. Um, it was just difficult to do it in Conference USA because it's you know, the expense of travel um, and your fans just not having any affinity for the teams. You know, I love FAU, FIU. I love going to South Beach. I mean, every time we went there, I went to South Beach and just loved it. But that's a long way to go for fans of both teams. It's, um, you know, half a continent away. And the same thing for UTEP. I love UTEP. But it's, you know, Old Dominion and UTEP should not be in the same league. Um, and the, the other thing is that Every game and every Sun Belt game will be on an ESPN network somewhere, whether it's ESPN3, ESPN+, Plus, ESPNU, News, or one or two. Uh, and that, as you know, that's not the case in Conference USA, where sometimes you can, you can see a really big game on Facebook, which I think is a mistake. It's uh, it's not the best setup for sure. So, you know, Eric, I know for us, it's going to be a lot easier to watch uh, how Old Dominion progresses over the next couple of years. No, Joe, I, I, <laughs> I, I had chuckled, you know, as I had my mic closed in terms of when Harry said Facebook isn't the greatest setup because there were a couple games this year. I, I 
want to say it was ODU Marshall was one of them. That was that on was Facebook. On, on yep. Facebook. And it right wasn't, a, wasn't a very good broadcast. Yep. <laughs> and I'm there and I'm like, you know, I, I uh, before I'm heading to the stadium or, or was FIU on by? Um, no, FIU had played on a Friday. So I was not heading to the stadium. So I was trying to catch a game. You know, I'm doing my usual search, trying to catch as much CUSA football as possible. And I'm, it, as someone who, you know, Joe's a millennial, it's still hard for even me to figure out how to necessarily navigate the Facebook broadcast. And then, Harry, as you mentioned, when you get it, it it's not the greatest broadcast either. So, um, no, cannot agree more of that. And, and listen, you know, we we hope to have you know, CUSA on and as we go through the offseason. And the TV deal will be certainly be something we talk about. But the Facebook situation is what it is. We can't, can't beat around the bush on that one. No, and Conference USA, the, those schools deserve a better TV. They deserve more. Um, e- even with all the schools you're losing, you, the, the league still deserves better better TV. And I hope I hope Judy McLeod and their, her staff are able to negotiate a better TV deal when the contracts come up. Yeah, I think that, uh, that could be seconded by pretty much everybody in the Conference USA Twitter sphere at this point. Um, Harry, we want to thank you so much for your time. Um, we want to go ahead and encourage people to follow you on Twitter at Harry underscore Minium ODU. Harry Minium, senior writer for ODU Sports since 2018. Highly encourage you all to go check out his coverage of the Old Dominion football program. Uh, it's top-notch and, and been a great uh, resource for, for us to, to do content about Old Dominion over the last couple of years. So, um, Harry, again, really can't thank you enough for your time, and uh, hopefully we'll get to talk to you again really soon. Thank you very much. I appreciate you guys having me, and keep doing your great work that you guys do. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot. Take care. All right. As we wrap up this Conference USA podcast, do want to thank Harry Minium once again. You know, it's interesting. We recorded that last week, Eric, and he mentioned the timetable on Old Dominion's move to the Sun Belt. And it's interesting, right? Pretty much, it's seemingly like right after we recorded that, it started to break that basically all of the new Sunbelt members are trying to operate on this expedited timeline to get into uh, the Sunbelt and leave their respective conferences. So part of me is like, man, we should have, <laughs> we should have tweeted that out, but I don't know. Regardless, really appreciative of, of Harry's time and the insight that he uh, gave us into just being able to watch old dominions athletic department grow over the last four decades. No, listen, he is a gentleman who I've wanted to have on this podcast for a long time. I'm glad we were able to track him down and make it happen. When you talk about an institution in terms of, you know, Virginia, collegiate sports, you know, sports in general, especially in the city of Norfolk. And then, of course, last but not least, ODU, Harry is that guy. So cannot thank him enough for making time. And yeah, maybe we could have you know, found a way to get that out. But just a pleasure and a treat. I hope uh, all the listeners enjoyed talking, the enjoyed the conversation with Harry as much as we enjoyed talking to him. Absolutely. And on the next episode of the Conference USA podcast, we are going to talk uh, transfer portal. We're going to talk coaching changes. Uh, and we're going to talk bowl games. Um, the immediate future of uh, Conference USA is going to be on the docket. And then, uh, you know, Eric, you might have to we might have to figure out something to do after that, because I'm going to be out of commission for my wedding and subsequent honeymoon for a little bit after uh, after the bowl games wrap up. But uh, thank you all so much for listening. We will talk to you very soon uh, at Underdog Dynasty on Twitter at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore for me at Eric C. Henry underscore for Eric. And uh, we will come back to you very soon with more Conference USA news, notes, and insights. Be safe. Happy football watching.